0: Lives are complicated, and I feel like Black women's lives have often been simplified in a way that doesn't reflect my own life and the lives of people I know. And I feel a great responsibility when I take on Lorraine Hansberry, Zora Neale Hurston, and and anything I do.
1: To Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we share Black feminist perspectives in close-read pop culture and other social topics that affect Black folks. I'm Brendan, and I use she/her/hers pronouns. And I'm Melissa, using she/her/hers pronouns.
2: Just in time for Anthropology Day and my birthday, pop, 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 pop. we're speaking with Tracy Heather Strain about her documentary exploring the iconoclast, the iconic Zora Neale Hurston. Tracy Heather Strain is co founder of the Film Posse, an award winning director, producer, and writer committed to using film, video, and interactive technology to reveal the ways that race, ethnicity, gender, and class work to shape lives. Since 1986, Tracy has worked on numerous documentaries for PBS, as well as videos for museums, schools, and nonprofits. The Corwin Fuller Professor of Film Studies in the College of Film and the Moving Image at Wesleyan University, Tracy also teaches documentary production, storytelling, and history while directing and producing non-fiction projects for screens large and small. Her most recent film, Zora Neale Hurston, Claiming a Space, documents Hurston's life as an anthropologist, demonstrating the way anthropology influenced her celebrated fiction. Claiming a Space premiered on American Experience on Tuesday, January 17th. You can stream the documentary online at pbs.org and see extra footage that didn't make it into the film. Which
1: I still have to do because, like, let me just tell y'all now, right? If you haven't already seen this documentary, you need to watch it. Run, don't walk. (laughs) As uh, K. Michelle says, um, you know, run, don't walk. Um, but it is literally like one of the best documentaries that I've ever seen about a Black woman, a period. Mm-hmm. Like, And it's a really amazing film that takes a look at Zora's life and her impact on the fields of anthropology and literature. So I left the film feeling angry, feeling inspired, and feeling so proud of us as Zora's daughters, continuing her legacy. Like there was song, <laughs> like straight from Zora's vocal cords to my computer screen and speakers. Like I love a good musical moment, so it really just it really just spoke to me to hear Zora sing. Um, and I learned a lot about her that I really didn't know. So I was just really pleased with the film. The archival material was just so rich. And you could tell that they really took their time making it. And then we also just had the pleasure of talking with Tracy afterwards and getting our insider kind of information about it. Uh, I felt like it was an orchestrated experience by the ancestors. But what did you think about the film, Melissa? I enjoyed the film as well
2: of course I mean you said that it, you said that it was the best film that you've seen about one of the best documentaries about a black woman you've ever seen I mean mm-hmm. Tracy didn't win that those Peabody's and the and NAACP awards like she didn't win that for nothing so right this is definitely she was definitely in her in her bag I went into the film thinking like you know we would kind of hear the things that we always hear about Zora the things that we already know because part of the purpose of the film was to introduce people to Zora the anthropologist Mm -hmm. so I was like okay I guess I'll see some things that I know maybe maybe I'll learn some new things but it was really refreshing to learn about her through a disciplinary outsider's eyes I guess you could say. Although, you know, the wonderful anthropologist uh, Lee Baker was one of the main consultants, but mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> listen, there's a if you watch Jumping at the Sun, compare jumping at the Sun, Lee Baker, to, <laughs> oh
1: my goodness. to claiming a
2: space, it's, Lee Baker. <laughs> yeah, especially the outfits. Um mm-hmm. he, he didn't he wasn't wearing the bow tie this time though. So I was a little disappointed. Uh, we're gonna have to talk to him about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: I think he's retired the bow ties Um, after not being Dean anymore. He's like, I can wear what I want. So
2: well, speaking with Tracy, I feel like we got to peel back some other layers of context around the film and its production. You could see how committed she is to telling our stories well with mm-hmm. insight and with texture. I really got to know more about Zora, the person through the film and to really play on our kinship metaphor, you know, it was kind of like when you meet one of your parents' old friends and they tell you stories about your parent that you're like, no way, my my mom was never like that. There's no right. way that my mom was like cool or fun. <laughs> right. Zora was in the you club. Know? Like, what? Zora exactly. was in the club. <laughs> <laughs> well, we definitely knew Zora was in the club because she she definitely liked to have fun. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, I'm nosy and also like low-key trying to study Black love in anthropology as well. So it was really like seeing her in a
1: new light. And seeing some other people in a new light, or maybe I should say confirming what we already know to be true about these old school white anthropologists. Mm, Yeah. So all of you listening out
2: there, once you all watch, we're going to have a conversation about how Franz Boas and Ruth Benedict did Zora dirty behind her back. They did her dirt
1: dirty, 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 like I, girl, I saw that and I literally thought about the fact that we are having the same experiences in the same department, nearly a century apart. Like it just, that part just shook shook the fuck out of me and be real um and it really makes you take dr irma's advice about seeing your rec letters seriously but i digress like i can't she said
2: don't don't accept a letter from someone who won't show it to you so take heed take heed take heed anthropology wouldn't be what it is without the innovative methods and ethnography of zora neale hurston This film expertly attends to that fact, thanks to the great work of Tracy and her team. So without further ado, here's our iConversation with Tracy Heatherstrain.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We are just like static over the moon um, to Mm -hmm. just have this exclusive opportunity um, to be able to speak with you today. So we are with Tracy Heather Strain, who is the director of the new Zora documentary that everybody's talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we just feel like we have a real exclusive moment. Um, And so just thank you again for joining us. And we're going to go ahead and get started with some questions. So Alyssa, would you like to get us started? All right.
2: So your films have examined the lives of Black women like Lorraine Hansberry and Zora Neale Hurston, and films are your passion. You frequently talk about them, you know, doing specific work in society. So we'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how film quote, allows us to reveal the ways that race, gender, ethnicity, class, and sexuality work to shape lives and reflect and challenge society's historical, artistic, political, and cultural narratives. And how do films about Black women do this especially well? Well, first of
0: all, thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of your show, and I was delighted when you guys reached out. So I feel very excited to speak with you today. So thank you. So to answer your question, uh, I began learning in college that what I had learned in US, of U.S. history, K-12, through were these incomplete narratives, you know, mm-hmm. stories and interpretations of history that centered whiteness and white agency, usually ignoring the contributions of women and African-descended people, Chinese, and celebrating the taking of land from native peoples who lived on the continent before the arrival of Western Europeans, as well as the United States. And as the United States became an imperial power, other groups of people appeared uh, as people, you know, folks to conquer. Mm -hmm. And films buffeted these stories that I learned, Um, they helped otherize people across the globe. And, um, and so when you make a film like the ones that I have made, um, you end up reading a lot of secondary source materials specifically about the subject. But you also read about what's go if you're doing it right, let's say, or mm-hmm. the way I do it, I'll say. <laughs> I hope it's right. Uh, you learn about uh, what's going on in their lifetime. So, you you know, you need context. You read things from different vantage points. And then I add my own understandings as a Black woman in the in U.S. society, right? I think about what I would like to see and what's been missing in my film, film film going experiences my television experience my documentary viewing experiences and so this gets wrapped up into um how I also understand historical political cultural things that are have happened to me and it helps these the films help place this in historical context for me and I think other people I work to make these films simple as well as complex and when I say Mm -hmm. that I want to I want to have them the film to work as a film on an emotional level I want people to learn things from it but I also feel like I want to have things in there that if you know a little more there's more there for you Mm -hmm. and some things might be communicated um, in words some things might be communicated in visuals like there's probably things you guys saw of, in the anthropology montages that made sense to you because you're familiar with those texts. But other people, they're just kind of anthropology texts. So I try to mix it up. But to kind of get back to what you were talking about, lives are complicated. And I feel like Black women's lives have often been simplified in a way that doesn't reflect my own life and the lives of people I know. And I feel a great responsibility when I take on Lorraine Hansberry, Zora Neale Hurston, and, and anything I do, to try to bring the complexity and the nuances that I see in my own life into their lives, right? But specific
1: to them, but it's also resonates with me. Just your point about how Black women are normally represented in films, right? There's a simplification. I think that even in and of itself is a profound point, right, and so what you're saying about the Black woman is this complex figure and the film that actually can reflect that or approximate that, um, is a beautiful work. And like I said, I was just, I was struck by how, how complex Zora was just like, even in the presentation in the film, and it wasn't reduced or simplified, right. To just one aspect of her existence or even her relationships with men, right. Or her relationships with white people white women because um, I think when we think about documentaries about women in general and even black women right there's there's kind of a focus on what about the love you know or whatever in her life right um, and that was one thing that really I was like yes let's make all these other things kind of <laughs> not they're part of the background of her life right but it really to me showed how passionate she was um, about her work and and it just showed how much she had to overcome. And in your interview with Essence, like you mentioned that you wanted people like black women in particular to recognize that Zora Neale Hurston lived a hard life with many obstacles. And that like obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And before we started recording, we were just talking um, about just how much of the obstacles that she faced while she was a student at Columbia paralleled our obstacles as black women students at Columbia now in the same department. Um, and so that they, like really just kind of shook me uh, to see that and to also see like the the beauty and the creativity that was still being birthed by her during this time. Um, so what do you think is The value of reminding folks that, uh, and you have this beautiful line in your Essence interview where you say, quote, uh, the hero has an obstacle to face. Um, And how have Zora's struggles resonated with you as a creative writer, director, and producer?
0: Okay, so I'm going to go back to the first part of your question uh, first, but first of all, I don't think success is inevitable in any field, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's easy to look at a work like Their Eyes Were Watching God and revere it and say, of course this was successful, of course we love this, right? Um, But creation for everyone is difficult Mm -hmm. and obstacles have always existed and will exist. And I think that we need to learn, we all need to learn how to face them and tackle them, which is nothing to do with, I think people need support. I'm not saying it should be really hard and no one should help you on your journey. That's not what I'm saying, but I think it, these days with so much anxiety and tension in the lives of young people that I think it's really important that they understand that it's hard for everyone to create it's not just for it's just not hard for them it's not easy for the rest of us and and this idea keeps being perpetuated in society through media that people are overnight successes but that's I don't even know if that's ever the case. People usually are working hard in their field with their heads down and then maybe something hits. And But they, the media seems to like those stories of overnight success or that make it mm-hmm. appear like it was easy. And I think people, young people get fed this and think that there's something wrong with them if things are hard and it isn't easy, it doesn't come out perfect. But mm-hmm. I got to see, I was privileged to see Zora Neale Hurston's papers and I could see her revisions and work over time, and mules and men, and different, you know, and, and other writings. How she just kept working to refine things, to get things just right, so that it resonated. That's what I had to do with this film. First of all, this film started as an hour long film, which I actually, from the beginning, I was like, "How can I say all this stuff in an yeah, hour?" What I can't <laughs> even. And I could have done. I could have done a three hour film. And uh, but anyway, the point is that I had to. If you saw the first cut of this film you would say whoa you know it didn't it wasn't working yet but i had to work at it over time to make it refine get feedback and 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 not be defensive about it right said so like you know i certainly had certain ideas but sometimes it took a while to combine someone's suggestion with a correction you know lee d baker was our lead advisor he saw an early cut. And he said, Oh, do not put that image in here. You're going to have problems. Do you know, think about this or what about that? And I did. And so um, I wish Dora Hurston had more people in her life to mm-hmm. do that kind of um, to provide that kind of support for her. But um, so, um, you know, that re- resonated with me, but also the difficult, the challenge of trying to bring black stories in the world by as a black person is a reality, you know, it's not easy. There's a way that there's, there's something I saw similar in anthropology, what I learned of anthropology. Now I don't claim to be any expert in anthropology, but the my limited view of anthropology and my more wide view of documentary filmmaking based on my own experiences, there's so many parallels. You know, we go into people's communities, into their lives. We ask them questions. We we form these relationships to do our work many of us try to be ethical mm. and uh mindful respectful uh non non-extractive and then you see people who have a different way of approaching things getting supported to do work in in communities that or mm. you know that you could do a better job uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. or or I've heard you talk <laughs> uh-huh. about
0: this when I think both of you have talked about how sometimes the work is seen as you're not really do, you know what is it me search I think you call mm-hmm. it research, right? yeah and it's you know, it's like you don't have enough distance from it to be to be objective and that still happens I remember I I feel like with Lorraine Hansberry for example when I would write these proposals and I was making it very clear that the story is that she's an activist. No one knows this. At that time, people were not aware that she was an activist. She would written Raising the Sun. They knew that they'd read it in high school. And then she died six years later. What is there to know? And somehow I was having the worst time breaking through this idea that there is more to know. And that's not actually her story. This play isn't the story. It's part of her story. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And. And. I, I you know I don't think people thought it was going to be interesting and uh you know fortunately I was able the National Endowment for the Humanities was very much a supporter from the beginning. my program officers all, always believed in the project and some other people like California Newsreel believed in the project and 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 a, a local um New England funder left Foundation was very supportive from the beginning but and friends and you know family. But very few people beyond that were particularly so black public media came in early in some other groups, but I couldn't get I couldn't get major institutional support for the film. And I couldn't understand why, because like a raising the sun was one of the most read plays in North America. And you'd think people would want to know about the person who wrote this play that's almost taught in every school in North America, or at least was. We forgotten the lists. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that list. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that people want to know the work, but they don't always want to know the person, particularly when the person is a black woman. And in Zorniel Hurston's case, a a very iconoclastic and you know, she's been considered difficult, difficult black woman. Mm-hmm. You know, she wasn't one who just kind of you know, just did her work and got, put her head down. She was very much in people's faces and making sure that people knew who she was and getting what she needed when she could. Yes. Very Capricorn. Um... <laughs> very Capricorn. <laughs> but I wanted to go back to what you were saying about, um, you know, how we do our work. And one of the things that's really striking in the documentary is the depth and richness of the archival material mm-hmm. there were things in there that I'd never seen before never heard of before especially the recommendation letters oh. from okay <laughs> I was very upset about that you all will have to watch the doc to see what Papa Franz was was doing behind folks backs
1: uh. <laughs>
2: so, <laughs> so one of the questions that I that we had is how was the film collected, curated? What went into the process um, of selecting the different images, um, photos, uh, videos, documents for the film?
0: Okay, so first of all, I had to develop a story. You know, I it's, you know there's so much I could say about Zorna Hurston and I've, I've read as many books as possible. Yeah, if you look through my Twitter feed, you can see a photograph of us wheeling back the books at the end of the process. We had like a huge like cart of books and another extra cart, you know, because we had just so much material. So we start with the secondary source material and we do something that I never did in college, which was read the footnotes to see where things mm-hmm. came from the other f- just an aside, you often learn that the interpretations that people make from the primary sources are way off. I learned that mm-hmm. on a variety of projects mm-hmm. way back. It's it's fascinating what people how people can twist certain things. But anyway, we 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 pull that out. So we start making lists of uh places that we know we need to go for things to look at things. And we start, I knew from the beginning. So Cameo George, who's an African American woman, she's the executive producer of American Experience, called me one day and said, Would you like to do this film on Zora Neil Hurston? And we'd like you to focus on her anthropological journey as it relates to her right her, here, you know, her literary output. And I was like, Of course, yes. And uh, mm-hmm. and so um, and so I knew that was part of the story from the beginnings. So that helped narrow down certain things, right? And I knew that. Their eyes were watching God was like the big moment where everything's coming together, where the, you know, the, the rich ethnography and the height of the writing were formed. So I knew I was driving to that big moment. Uh so how then it's like, how do you get to that moment? And so part of that the challenge is, okay, they need we need to know about Eatonville and the significance of that. We need to know about particular books. We need, to, you know, the first ethnographic book. The next one, we need to know about anthropology. What is the, and this is a weird thing to say, but what is the least amount I can say about anthropology mm, in this? That's film? how I feel about because... everything.
1: Huh? <laughs> that's how I feel about all anthropology. What's the least I can say? <laughs>
0: because it's just, I just need to do enough to provide context. I don't want to like stop the narrative and like suddenly give this anthropology history lesson, but I have to give some context because you need to know not just where anthropology was when Zora Neale Hurston entered it, you have to understand what happened with, a little with Boaz and the field overall to be able to appreciate why Boaz was a significant figure and why she would want to work with him, right? So there was, there were those, you know, that was, that had to be in there. So what imagery do you use to like help tell that story? Uh, and so, as I I mentioned earlier, Sometimes there's some communication that's just visual to give people impressions. People like you will know exactly what you're seeing. Other people just get that this was in the zeitgeist. And then, um, and then um, when can I have Zora Neale Hurston really speak for herself? And, you know, I can talk about that more later, but those films at the library of Congress that she shot, I, knew and the team knew that we wanted to get in as much of that as possible i mean it's it, so amazing right you know that that she had it and and our, so our goal was to use as much of that footage that she'd shot as possible i always wanted her to speak for herself in a variety of ways as much as possible um and we keep track of everything in the database we had interns helping us you know so i didn't just do the research we had a you know team of people working on that um and one of the things I'd like to point out about the film camera that's so amazing—I mean, we may have our issues with Charlotte Osgood Mason, but if it wasn't for Mason, we wouldn't have those those you know motion picture images that Hurston shot. But anthropology was not at all interested in motion picture cameras at that time. They thought it was uh, expensive, cumbersome, and they it based on my research, they felt like they being the discipline, uh, it required, um, it, it couldn't capture the level of detail that was required for the discipline at that time. And, uh, and so everything was about the written notes and, mm-hmm. and observation that way. And so it's, it's kind of fast. It's just one more example of how she's ahead of of her, of her time. Right
1: yes and always um like the discipline now right is dealing with all of these questions around okay how do we account for the fact that we are the ones doing this research and all these things that you mentioned in the film that she had already um that she had already constructed a path for right um and even an understanding of what an interdisciplinary black studies degree is right and so when I think about Zora, right, I think about her contemporaries, academics and literary. So like Richard Ray, as well as, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois and others, right, who were very much about preserving a certain kind of canon and then inserting Black experience into that, right, or, or filtering Black experience through a certain kind of canon and Zora being really ahead of the time and saying, we actually don't have to do that. We can defy the kind of logics these kind of logics. So that was, um, you know, it was just very moving for me. Uh, and you mentioned just now thinking about including Zora's voice. And for those of you who haven't had the chance to watch the film yet, you actually get to hear Zora singing. Um, you get to hear like a dramatized, um, dramatized version of her voice throughout. And I was just like watching it and very curious like how how did you decide who would do that voice Um, and what was the process for really determining that dramatized sound because it it very much sounds like a black southern woman right and and so it's just like oh you know how um how did how did y'all know to do this um like how did you know that zora needed to speak to in the film
0: uh so I always so if you saw the Hansbury film, I did this a the similar thing. Um it's something really important to me to have the the protagonist, the hero, narrate her own story as much as possible. And um I I, I think of this documentary like as to, to, to like as a film, you know. I want to take you on the emotional journey on a variety of levels, but particularly emotionally with the main characters, as if this is Zora Neale Hurston. And so if she can tell us how she's thinking, that's, I think that makes the film stronger. Mm-hmm. And I think it provides better insight into what she was facing and how she felt. It's very difficult, like Lorraine and Zora did not always share their feelings about mm-hmm. certain things. So it was it was a it was a challenge um, to to do this sometimes, but fortunately, um, she wrote letters to Langston Hughes, for example, and she shared not only what she was working on, and and so we kind of have some field notes in a, in a certain way in in those letters, as well as how she felt about the work. Mm-hmm. Um, Dust Tracks on the Road is has some insight, but it, she even suggests, I'm not going to tell you all my business. That you know, that's a mm-hmm. paraphrase. You know? <laughs> but, uh, and so, you know, I, I had to like weigh with a grain of salt but I, I always wanted her to be in here. And of course, since we're going to mix it with her authentic voice and she is a black female Southerner. And so is my grand, my maternal, or so was my maternal grandmother who is from Orlando whose voice sounded very much like Zora's voice and it kind of freaked me out sometimes there's actually a picture in the film that my whole family every time anyone saw it was like oh
1: my gosh
0: that's grandma Mora so um so I felt connected in that way and so I wanted to find a southern voice Unfortunately, Bonnie Turpin who had done recordings of Zora's work you know for in for audiobooks and um she was actually by the way was in Daughters of the Dust (laughs) um and uh and uh, she just, she just had, the, she just had. We listened to all different people, but she just had what we thought we needed. And you don't want to have a voice that sounds exactly like Zora's voice because you don't want to mislead the audience. I mean, I still have to do some of the same things that Zora's, like letting people understand. W- you know, when it really isn't, isn't her. And so I thought we, that's why we have those lower third identifiers on the screen, Mm -hmm. Zora's voice, Zora's footage. It's funny jumping away from the voice for a second, you know, the remember the scene, that moment when the guys are working on the railroad. Yes. Yes. Even though we say, we only say Zora's voice, everyone thinks Zora Neil Hurston shot that footage and she didn't, but um, you know, that I kind of was worried that would happen, but anyway, but it was amazing to find footage that perfectly fit what she was saying even though she didn't shoot it and that was one of a big that was one of our big archival triumphs when the editor showed us that i was like oh this has to go in mm. the film cuz it it also it wasn't just that it was her voice you could see what she was seeing and what was important what she was getting out of you know watching the men work and the rhythm and the the musicality of them right Um, was the joy
1: yeah i was gonna say the joy of it well and you know i i think even though they were
0: working right yeah Yeah. i was gonna say i think
1: it's a very um black thing right you find the joy in your work and song is is a a way that we do that like right from our ancestors from the moment they stepped onto this land and and so now right so i thought that um like when I I think the moment that Zora's singing voice broke in through in the film, I paused the film. I was like, wait a minute. Like, I I mm-hmm. I literally pressed my little space bar on my computer and I just sit and say, Wait, Zora sings too. And then I was like, Of course. Cause I, I'm from South Carolina. So it's a black girl from the South, right? Even if you can't sing, why right, you can sing. And so the the idea is that everybody <laughs> is is singing in some way. And so just to to hear her sing. Um, I, it just really it just really touched me. And the song is like integrated throughout the film. And as you mentioned that moment, that was another moment for me where I was like, if we did not have the song here, we just had the images and maybe if we just had music, right? Um, it would not have had the same kind of impact as the song overlaying the images um, mm-hmm. and the kind of message throughout. And so- I wanted to know for you, like what, what impact does song have on the film? Um, and the, like, for me song is essential to understanding black life, but do you, do you believe that song is essential for understanding black life and understanding Zora?
0: I, I do, I do, I, because, especially because she thought it was so important mm. and um, it, and just music overall is important to me. Like just working with the composer was wonderful. You know, to to just bring music. We had these great conversations for around about the score and how to integrate the score with Zora Neale Hurston's music. You know, to not undercut it, mm-hmm. to help amplify it at times, to set it up. Um. And uh, but her, again, it's just this idea of like how many aspects of her can we include in this? This, and how much can we connect? so that you could not just hear her performing these songs, but you could see that this was an important part of her research and work. She was so dedicated, right? And that, you know, so we could not just hear her singing, but we have her in an audio recording explaining how she learned these songs and collected them. And and then she, she's also she's not just saying that she, she listened to people. She would go back, she would practice and go back to people and see if, she was doing it right. And then, you know, I you know, went back and like wrote it down and transcribed it, which leads me to think, you know, when we see those, the musical bars and like Mules and Men and other places, she's like, she had to understand music too. So you're like, how many things could this woman do, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and so um, I I think that music has always been important in another work. I did a, a film that included the birth of bebop and and you know it's just it's always been this form of expression that um unfortunately gets appropriated
1: Mm -hmm. um
0: and and even then zora neale hurston was talking about how our material gets taken uh i found it fascinating in uh singing steel that she were she fought to have it not to have it presented raw she didn't want it like recomposed even by African-Americans she just wanted it the authentic um, expression to be performed on stage did you know that she almost went to Yale
2: drama school (laughs) no I just I saw it in one of your one of your other interviews and I was not surprised at all she definitely seems like someone who would have done great in theater Mm -hmm. as well I was just going to say when she was playing the
0: Rosenwald she uh first was trying to go to Yale drama school. I mean, it looked like it was going to work out, but then for some reason I'm I'm not clear on, she switched to you know, studying going for the PhD in anthropology.
2: Mhm. I I found her just in watching the documentary. I just found her to be such a courageous person. You know, not everybody could do what it was that she was doing, going into these communities, being rejected at first and then going back anyways and learning all of their songs. Not knowing them at the beginning and then going back and saying, hey, do I have this right? It definitely shows her dedication. And I think that her contemporaries, as we were talking about and in the documentary, we learn about Richard Wright and those who kind of lampooned their eyes were watching God. And they're writing fiction and philosophy and they get to write from a little bit of a of a removed distance from their subjects, whereas she's really spending, you know, I guess what we would call deep hanging, you know, she's really Mm -hmm. spending time with people um, and learning a lot about them and part and truly participating. And um, in this really courageous way, which was very different than the kinds of things um, that her contemporaries were doing. So I just, I think that your film really brought that out and, and definitely made it very poignant for me that she was quite a, quite a brave, (laughs) brave and courageous person.
0: Yeah, I think that just following up on that, it's also disappointing how, you know, Richard Wright, who hadn't, wasn't quite, hadn't written his book yet, you know, he had, he was just, that's why I just referred to him as writer Richard Wright, um, which is a little <laughs> awkward thing to say, but he wasn't famous, she was this famous person, and he's like attacking her, and I, I you know, you could just, the sexism and the, and the dismissal of it, I f- it feels intentional to like misread their eyes were watching God, you know, mm-hmm. um, especially since people knew that she was studying, ethno- you know, she was studying anthropology. This was an interest of she'd spent work, but, you know, it's hard to account for jealousy also in mm-hmm. this world. You can't, mm-hmm. you know, unless we find a document that says that, he, you know, that who? where are those documents? <laughs> but I, you know, I, I think that sometimes it, it appears to me that sometimes people make their names on bringing other people down as they're trying to, you know, rise up, and mm-hmm. uh, you know I'm not sure about Elaine Locke, but those <laughs> excuses. But um, <laughs> but I some I was thinking about that a lot when I um put that section in to include about
1: Richard Wright. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was a hater.
2: <laughs> uh, he was a hater. I think, but yeah, so
1: much of the work of this time like intellectually um well I would say yeah like late 19th early 20th century right so black men are entering into a world in which um well only a certain kind of complexion of them one is allowed to enter right and then and then right if you're if you can't bring your other black folks with you right you kind of have to I guess what I would call it, take a passing approach to to the work that you do and and the way that you build community. And so Zora, as an undeniably, unmistakably Black woman, right, who says, I am not going to sit here and write a Victorian novel. I'm going to write about Black folks in the South, um, could have posed a threat to the ways that they move through the world and the ways that they eventually you know has success and in, in, in Richard Wright's case, gains success but I think his his book Native Son and the way that he kills off Bessie right um and the way that 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 becomes part of the plot in the in the novel right the way that the Bessie is killed and um the treatment of that Speaks a lot to how he viewed black women at the time, but that's just me as a <laughs> as someone who like reading stuff, and you know, um, I think his work actually really tells it all. Um, yeah, he preempts some
2: misogynoir.
1: <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you know what, have you ever heard of <laughs> black women? Uh, let me show you how it's done. Um, and, and also, W.E.B. Du Bois does a good job of that too, and I'm sure there are some people who who will hate me for saying that, but, um, (laughs) there's a lot of, he, he was one of her favorite people. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, and I want to know more about that,
2: (laughs) (laughs) but I think, I think what this goes to show is that she faced a lot of obstacles throughout, throughout her life. Mm -hmm. You know, she, what we see in the documentary is her overcoming these constant, constant obstacles of whether it's money, whether it's of personalities that were around her. And so I think one of the questions that we wanted to ask you is what was the most difficult part of creating the film? You know, Were there any obstacles that you faced? And if so, how did you overcome them?
0: I think figuring out how to include anthropology was really hard for us. Mm-hmm. It took like those animations that you see, those took a long time to figure out. It- they didn't get figured out until the last minute you know how to how do you visualize what uh is being said about folklore um that took a long time i literally actually was randy and i randy's my partner he was the producer of the film we were um i had this idea of having the words words of different folklore people on the screen and we got these images and some interns helped us and we printed them out like literally we're in the in our like living room cutting out this stuff and pasting like putting them down and like took a picture for the animators like can you animate like because it was like how do you how do you represent something that we can't really get into you know that was the stuff that was really hard and where how do you How much can you tell of the New Negro Movement, which is, you know, becomes known as the Harlem Renaissance, so that people appreciate that? And I don't want to leave it out, but I can't get into it in a major way, because when you think about classic storytelling, I got to get to her discovering anthropology. That's like the inciting incident. That's when the story Mm -hmm. is really taking off. And so, of course, I have to do Eatonville and all these things. And of course, I'm not going to leave out you need to know what happened that there's this period of time after her mother dies that she's on her own right Mm -hmm. you need to know that she's at howard of course then you know then we get her you know to barnard you know but um yeah but how to like situate that new negro movement was very hard it kind of moved around in different ways and and so did certain things about anthropology and folklore and uh, we were even trying to like define ethnography, but it just it just had that we just had to stop, you know. Um, and you know, there's also there were discoveries along the way, and then you it becomes difficult. like how do you not lose what is working? but like add this other stuff. Sometimes it was a writing thing that could do it. Other times it was, um, just something had to go. And, uh, you know, so one of the things that did go, so we didn't talk about her love life, you know, and the the men that were in her life that used to be in the film. I wanted to try to show that she was so dedicated to her work that every time she thought she wanted to be in a relationship, she realized it was going to interfere with her work. She was that not going to stay at home and like be remember. the traditional, <laughs> you know, housewife or whatever mm-hmm. you, people were calling it. Then I don't know if they were using that term then, but she was like, "Nope, nah, nope, gotta go, you know? And even like, you know, this, you know, Percival Punch, who she loved so much, you know, she kind of basically fled to Haiti and Jamaica to kind of get, you know, like escape this, this intense attraction and in the relationship, because even though he was this younger guy, he wanted her to fit in this box. And she's like, no, I'm not, that's not happening, you know, so um that was that was hard. I, I do think it was challenging to try to think about trying to make this an hour-long film. That was really hard. It was kind of a relief on mm-hmm. the one mm-hmm. hand when it grew. Uh but the deadline didn't change. So that was actually very stressful for us to get this <laughs> film done on time to make it to air date. But I mean it it's it worked down. And I'm I'm pleased you two are like per if you guys are happy, then I know I've done it right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, very happy. And I think one of the things, though, that I really enjoyed about the film was that there was not as much of a focus on her love life. And, you know, we know that uh, Zora is a Capricorn. And if anybody has any Capricorn placements, work is work is at the center of their life um, in so many ways. And so, yeah, nothing gets Cause that gives him purpose, right? So nothing gets in the way of that. So I just I just felt like, yeah, that's very, very classic Capricorn behavior, always being about the bag. Yeah. And I really liked the treatment of her relationship with Langston Hughes too and her friendship with him. Um and how instrumental it was and how pivotal it was, but it wasn't like like that was a, a part of the film, but the film didn't just kind of like dive into that. Like it was just like, yeah, he was there. He was a friend. And then had a friendship breakup and it negatively impacted her later but you know um she still continued to do her work so i thought that the film was like a beautiful reflection of what we can capture of zora's legacy right um there's so much that we will just never know or never really be able to say um and we're curious, like what, in in your opinion, do you believe is the most enduring part of, of her legacy?
0: Okay, do you mind if I just address one other thing yeah. before I address that? Okay, so that was very intentional not to go into big detail about Langston Hughes because, and we actually had people say, "Well, oh, I wanna know more about that relationship. And I had to keep saying, that's not what this film is. This mm-hmm. film is about Zora Neale Hurston. And, you know, people latch on to what they think they know, or what seems, you know, but Langston Hughes wasn't Langston Hughes yet. He was a, still a college student. And, and so, you know, they know about him now, but back then he was, she was actually giving him money and different things like that. The other intentional thing I'll just throw out there is you will notice that we don't talk specifically named Alan Lomax in the film, and that was intentional. He was also a college student at that time. So anyway, to answer your question about Zora's legacy, um Zora Neale Hurston's literary writing will probably be the biggest part of her legacy. Um, And I think that there's good reason for that, but I think that's because of the meticulous dis- depictions of culture mm-hmm. and her clear love for Black people that is a product, and Black women in particular, that that in the way it is, is situated in this literary work is if if i speak of their eyes were watching god is because of her study of anthropology and interest in folklore and ethnographic research i love in the film when lee baker talks about thick description i tried Mm -hmm. my best to represent that in the, the their eyes were watching god scene to sort of try to work with her the words of her the text of her book music and those images to like have an audience feel what she was trying to convey um and uh so that that is to me what is important about her legacy um her tenacity her deep belief in the work that she's doing as part of her le- legacy even though she faced all these setbacks she never stopped trying and that's why you know i I had to end the film with that quote from You Don't Know as Negroes, where she says, "You know, go hard or go home. Mm -hmm. I just think that kind of sums her up, right? I think that's her, like I say, passionate love of her people. And she expressed it in so many different ways, but her literary output is where we see this most expressed.
1: Our last question. um, And it's one that is more of of like a reflective uh one that we've been asking everyone that we've talked to this month right uh is what do you see as your legacy um and if you could describe your career in three words what would you say
0: Okay, so I actually think this is your most. This is the most difficult question of all. I don't know what other people have said, but I actually have never really thought about my my legacy. I just have been so focused on you know trying to get things done in the in the present. Um, but in terms of my career, if I had to pick three words, which you're making me do, <laughs> uh, about my three words about my career, I would say underestimated, patient, and determined. And um, and I, then I hope that I hope that my legacy—I don't know what my legacy would be—but I hope that it would include notions of someone who was kind, helpful, and crafted stories that made a difference in the lives of people who experienced them.
1: Well, you are definitely doing that. Um, yeah. So, no need to keep it as a hope. It is—it's accomplished, mm-hmm. happening, um, and we are too of the many. Yeah um of the thousands millions like oh. so thank you <laughs> thank you so much for your work um and we just we're just so excited to have been a part of this and to have these moments with you so um Alyssa do we have anything else we want to say as we close out or no I was just gonna say I,
2: I the reason I I love that question is is because you know usually what we explain is that Zora is always she's often described in you know three words genius iconoclast avant-garde right and I I heard that in the documentary so and we always wonder you know we always ask would she see herself in those terms you know mm-hmm. and so we ask that question to give um, our guests the opportunity to define that for themselves
0: mm-hmm. I wonder. I I think that I do think she was a genius. I bet she I bet she was someone she had so much confidence. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that inner Zora was maybe as confident as the outer Zora was, because when I think of her childhood and what she had to endure, I think she had to create a identity, like a you know, armor. Mm -hmm. But I think that she would answer in very affirmative ways. You know.
2: Because I don't think she how else could she have gotten through things, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. This has been incredible. I am inspired to go spend some time in the archives and read read all of these documents and and books and everything for myself. Um, and I'm I'm really glad that we got this deep look into a little bit of the background of the film um, from you, the director, producer, writer. <laughs>
0: Thank you for having me. It was again a delight speaking with you, and uh, and a real honor. And uh, yeah, I hope to meet you guys in person at some point. Yes, and that go would walk be lovely. With your work, <laughs> and uh, I'll be listening in—not um, maybe on this podcast, <laughs> but uh, on the other ones that don't include me.
2: <laughs> That's all we have for y'all today. Thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by Alyssa James and Brendan Times and distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by a grant from the Arts and Science Graduate Council, the Heyman Center Public Humanities Graduate Fellowship, and donations from listeners just like you.
1: Thank you all for
2: your support.
1: If you like this episode, please share it via social media, text message, TikTok, because, girl, we ain't going on there. Um, we would love to hear what you have to say about this episode. So be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. And for transcripts, syllabi, and information on how to cite us or become a patron to access exclusive content, visit our website, Zora'sDaughters.com. Last but not least, be kind
2: to yourselves. Bye. Bye.